If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. Well, good morning. It is, thank you. It is an honor to be with you all um, this final day of January. And if you are new to us, uh, not only are we ending a series called Dangerous Prayers, but we are ending a season of prayer and fasting. We've been in a season of 21 days of prayer and fasting. This is day 19. We just have two left. And so if you're new and like you walked in with a donut and like the greeter was looking at you, was staring at you and like drooling out of their mouth, like don't be alarmed by that. Don't be freaked out about it. I mean, you may want to keep your hands and your feet inside the ride at all times. That may help you, but you know, everything's fine. Um, so what we're getting ready to end this on Tuesday will be the 21st day, uh, Tuesday. And so we're going to have this big party celebration at 6 p.m. potluck dinner. Uh, and we want everyone to, uh, to be at that, whether you were participated in, the, in that or not. Maybe you're brand new. We'd love for you to come celebrate with us because what we're not celebrating, it's not a victory lap for those who, who did this. But it's what it is, it's, it's, we're, it, we're celebrating what God is doing, has done, is doing, and will do because of what's happened here this past season. And that's something for all of us to celebrate. When you read about uh, the people of God in the Old Testament, they took off 51 days a year. About 10% of their income went to partying, essentially, remembering what God has done. So we, we have our orders. And uh, and uh, we're going to do that. And, and you have your orders, too. So we'll see you at 6. It'll be, it'll be a good time. And um, I was thinking of this on, on the right end, is that it just occurred to me that we've never in our history, we've never in our history had a potluck. Like, it just occurred to me. It's like, I don't know. It's just like, um, we, we, by the way, next week, we'll be celebrating 23 years as a church. 23 years. Can you believe that? And we never had a potluck. We never had a potluck. So not only have we've never done 21 days of prayer and fasting, we, we have never had a potluck. So you could come to Jubilee's first ever potluck. We're making uh, old things cool again. Okay, so you, you can. So the church has been around 23 years ago, but I, I met my wife 21 years ago, uh, my wife Rachel, for those who don't know her. And for, and for me, I instantly knew that, it, that this is it. This is the one. Uh, for her, it took a little bit long, longer. Like she had to warm up uh, to the idea. Uh, she's still kind of warming up to the idea, but... Um, <laughs> Because to be honest, like we, 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 from a distance, we weren't each other's type, okay? We weren't each other's type. She was, she is and was creative, artistic in the world of beauty and feelings. I'm from the, the, the efficient, driven world of, of ideas and productivity. She's about being present and, and fostering connection. I'm about the future and fostering action. She's in design. I like sports. She's in the variety. I am into sameness. Uh, so like when we met, her, her, her diet in the past week had more variety than my diet my entire life, okay? So like, she, she liked to decorate and have furniture. I owned a TV and a few milk crates, all right? So like, that was how I rolled. And uh, so, so from a distance, I, you know, I wasn't her type. She wasn't uh, my type. So what changed? How did that, we've been married 19 years. How did, what changed? Well, I met her. I encountered her. I experienced her. Now I eat quinoa, or like she likes to call quinoa. And so like, uh, and um, now I have a line item on my budget called furniture. It's amazing. And 
Like now I watch shows about baking and design all by myself. Like have you ever, I was like, I remember the first time, like we're watching this baking design show and I, and I had this moment where I realized like I was the only one watching it. Like everyone else had left the room and I had a decision to make and I just kept watching it. And now I'm in season eight. And so like I just, uh, and uh, that's what I'm gonna do when I get home. And so we, um, but look, there are some encounters. There are some encounters that are so powerful, they can be life-changing. And the reality is your, your encounter, uh, if your encounter is with the living God, that, that is the most true. And, and this may help some of you trying to figure out what Christianity is, because I hear all the time, like, you know, I just, I, I, I just don't know that I'm God's type. Like, you know, there's a Christian type, and, and I'm not it. And, uh, well, this may help. And, and Paul wrote this in, in Romans 3. He says, as it is written, none is righteous, n- not one. No one understands. Check this out. No one seeks for God. In other words, nobody is God's type. Nobody looks at God and says, okay, I'm his type and, and, and he's my type. Nobody does that. Nobody. Okay, so why in the world are like 2 billion people on the face of the earth right now worshiping his name? Why do people gather every week? Why do people give away a chunk of their income? Why do people serve without any expectation of anything in return? Why do people lay down personal ambition to do whatever, whenever, and wherever? That is nobody's type. Nobody naturally does that. Well, what changes? What changed? What changed? Two billion people encountered him, and everything changed. And so we're going to take a look at Isaiah, who had this encounter, and he is going to pray the concluding prayer of our series, Dangerous Prayer. So if you have your Bible, open up to Isaiah 6.1. There is a Bible underneath the chair in front of you, or you can use your phone And if you're too lazy to pick up a Bible off the floor, don't worry. We'll have it on the screen in front of you. Was that a little much? Was that a little chippy? Because I'm really doing fine. Like, I'm really, I'm having a good, I'm good, I'm good. Everything's good. Um, But you might want to buckle up. Isaiah 6.1. This is what he says. He says, in the year of King Uzziah, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train on his robe filled the temple. And I need to explain something here. So in ancient times, the length of the train on your robe was a signal to how big your kingdom was. So if you had a really big kingdom, all right, you had a really big train on your robe. And if you had a little bitty kingdom, like you had a small little train on your robe and you saw a counselor once a week. But if you had, but so when the Bible is saying that the, the, the train of God's robe filled the temple, what he's saying in God's presence, there's no room for anyone else's authority. He will never, ever, 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 ever be your side God. Above, a few people got that. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and then with two, he flew. So seraphim, if you don't know, were angels. It's that word seraphim is made up of two words. Seraph, which means burning one, and I am just makes it plural. So this is a group of burning beings 
we call angels, which is kind of a different picture when we think about angels. When we think of angels, we think about a naked baby playing a harp, okay? That's what we think about. But this is not the picture we see here in Isaiah. And to be frank, it's not the kind of picture of angels that we see in, in the scriptures. In fact, here's a little fun Bible trivia. The two most common phrases in the Bible said by angels are fear not and get up. When you meet an angel, hey, don't be afraid. I know I'm a scary, scary looking being that's on fire and can destroy you. Fear not. Oh, and you, sir, you can get up now. You can get up now. Two most common phrases. It's a lot different than what we think of. So angels are scary. That's the point. And, one, and then they begin to call to one another saying, holy, holy, holy. Now, if you have your Bible or your phone, go ahead and underline that, circle it, highlight it, do whatever you need to do. We'll come back to that. Is the Lord of, Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I think we sing a song with that phrase. Verse four, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. Verse five. And I said, here's another one phrase to underline. Woe is me for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand, presumably at the direction of the King, a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And this is important too. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, the final dangerous prayer of our series, here I am, send me. Here I am, send me. Now this passage is very rich and there's so much to talk about. However, I'm going to focus in on one idea from this text, and that is God has a heart to reach the world. He has a heart to reach the world. His his agenda is that he is on a search and rescue mission for his lost kids all throughout the world. So while his kingdom and his values are, are, are at odds with the world, he loves the world and he wants to reach the world, but it's in my, but in my experience, for the most part, that the posture that most Christians have toward the world isn't that posture. In fact, there, there, there are three postures that they, um, that they take. In fact, maybe, maybe you, if you would be so honest, you might self-identify in one of these camps. So the first posture that we see is that some Christians have a posture to judge the world. They want to judge. So in their mind, Christian are the good guys, uh, and the non-Christians are the secular people, are the bad guys, and it's the job of the good guys to beat the bad guys. So when they look at the world, they're motivated by anger at the world, and they are shocked and have no clue why non-Christians don't act like Christians, and so they're sparked with outrage. So outrage that non-Christians don't want to pray in school, outrage that Starbucks didn't put Christmas on the cup, outrage that the Pillsbury Barry Doughboy isn't wearing any pants. I mean, they're just filled with outrage because their posture is to judge the world. And here's what that group tends to forget, that there's not a good us and a bad them. There's just a sinful we and a gracious he. 
See, the, see, the religion divides the world into the good guys and to the bad guys. The gospel divides the world into bad guys and Jesus, right? So like Romans 3, there's none righteous, right? There, there's no one who's God's type. No one. There's just bad guys in Jesus. And Jesus did not come into the world to beat the bad guys. He came to be beaten for the bad guys. If he came to be to beat and not be beaten for, to judge and not save, we would all be destroyed. So that's one group. There's another group that their posture is to avoid the world. This group treats the world like they have a contagious disease, and if I get too close, I might catch the sinnies. You know, like I'm going to get this disease. And so they, they're motivated not by anger, but by fear. And so we have to hunker down into some Christian subculture, and they tend to be, but not always, they tend to be more conservative. Now, I want to commend this group for their desire for holiness. That is a very good thing. We are called to be different and distinct, different and distinct. That is our call. We are different. We represent a different we have a different citizenship. We're just here as ambassadors. When you become a Christian, you cease to primarily be of this world. You're of heaven. It's a, it's a bit of a mystery, but it's a wonderful one. So, that, so they have this desire for holiness, but what they miss is to have the holiness of God requires us to have the heart of God. And to have the heart of God is to remember that he left the safety of heaven for the vulnerability of earth. Okay, and so like when, so when Jesus talks about us, he says, I send you out like sheep among wolves. How many here know that like that's not gonna go well for the sheep? Like how many here know that? Okay, I know you're not a shepherd, but you probably know that. You can imagine. If you're not, you could probably seriously watch it on YouTube. Um, the, uh, but here's the other thing. So we're called, in, just like Jesus was, but when he walked the earth, here, here's something really cool about Jesus. When he walked the earth, he, the, the, the kind of people he hung out with earned him a nickname. He, he had a nickname. When he, he was called the friend of what? Sinners. sinners. Yeah, he's called the friend of sinners. And the last thing that Jesus said wasn't to go in your home and hide. It was to go in the world and share. And aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? I know I am. That he did not keep his distance from sinners. If you've ever wanted to say amen in a church before, like that was like a really good time. I, I know you missed it, so I'm gonna back up and try that one again. Aren't you glad that Jesus did not keep his distance from sinners? Amen. All right, doesn't that feel good to say that? And, and just to add a little more, this, this may help. Jesus said this in Mark 7. There's nothing outside of a person that by going in him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. In other words, here's what you gotta be really careful of. It's not to be careful of how the actions of others affect you, although I would say be smart in your friendships. That's a different sermon. However, what's more important than, you, than the behavior of others is your own heart. It's the condition of your heart. We are told not to, to trust our heart. We're, we're told to, to guard our heart. And there's a reason for it, because it's not what's out of us that defiles us. It's what's in us that defiles us. Okay, then there's a third group that wants to mirror the world. So they don't want to judge it. They don't want to avoid it. They want to mirror the world. Now, what's interesting about this group is they are motivated by the same thing as those who want to avoid the world. They're motivated by fear. 
But they're not afraid of being affected by the world. They're afraid of being rejected by the world. And they tend to be, not always, they tend to be more liberal. Now, I would also like to commend this group for building bridges, for staying connected, for being amongst their compassion, their savvy with culture, something that the church desperately, desperately needs. But what they have missed in their own heart is a migration of hope. And their hope is in what humanity can do to change the world and not what God can do in and through them. It's like, it's almost like we need to get, I liked it better when you were laughing. It's almost like we need to get like the avoiders in the, in the mirrors like to become like one. Like that would be, in fact, there, there's a person, a, a type of that in the Bible. His name's Daniel. If you remember Daniel in the lion's den. In the lion's den. Uh, he did more than hang out in the lion's den, by the way. He had a fulfilling life. And um, the, he, he was... He was in the Babylonian culture, like he was a mover and a shaker big time. And so Babylon was a real place, but it also in the Bible personifies uh, evil and something you don't want to be in. But he was in there. He was amongst, and he, had, he, had a, he was given a lot of, of, of influence in Babylonian culture. And he, in fact, he was the advisor of not one regime, but three right? Like three different regimes. Regimes, in fact, too, like where one king would come into a conquering kingdom and, and like kill every leader, but we want to keep Daniel. I mean, can, I mean, can you imagine that, can you imagine George Bush, Obama, and Trump all having the same advisor? <laughs> you would have to be really good to be chosen by all three of those. Daniel was that good. He was in culture, but check this out. But Daniel resolved that he would not. I will not live the way Babylonians live. I will not eat what they eat. I will not do that. I will not defile myself. I will restrict myself from doing that. And so the king was worried about this because he's like, I want you to eat the, my food. I want you to have my food because I need you to be strong and healthy. I don't want you to wither away with your little vegetables. And so, so Daniel, in his confidence in who God is, not in what he could do, in, in who God is, he said, okay, test me. You let your crew eat the best food in the land and me and my boys will eat my diet. And this is what the king said in verse 14. So he listened to them in this manner and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and, had, and were fatter in flesh than everyone else. He didn't indulge in what the world offered, but he was better off. He was amongst, but he was different. He was amongst, he was not avoiding the world, but he didn't mirror the world either. Our marriages are going to look different. Our families are going to look different. Our finances are going to look different. Everything is going to look different. And you know what? You're going to look really weird and strange if you stand in the midst of culture. The people around you will see the fruit, though. They may not be down with the root, but they'll see the fruit. Here's a fourth group I want to talk about today. Fourth Posture is to transform or reach the world. 
by remaining distinct and different, but by befriending and getting up close, being a witness. This group is motivated by love. And we see this posture of God in the text. He's like, okay, who shall I send? Who will go for us? I am not okay with people being separate from me. I'm not okay with that. Who will go for us? And then we see it in Isaiah. Once he encounters God, he says, here I am, send me. And God's like, oh, you haven't even, I haven't even told you. He's like, I don't care. Where, whatever, wherever, whenever. But by the way, don't read past verse eight. It won't encourage you. But here's what's true. Encounter with God always. 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 Encounter with God always leads to mission with God. Always. When you encounter the real God, not the God that you would make up in your head, when you encounter the real God, it always leads to mission with God. Always. Because that's God's heart. That is his heart. He's on a search. I could just go, I could go, you know, Moses at the burning bush, encounters, go do what I want you to do. Jeremiah, uh, Abraham, Peter, all throughout the Bible. You could just go on and on and on. But I'll just cut to the chase. I like to cut to the chase. Jesus in Mark 1 says this. Don't say this out loud, church folk. Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Fishers of men. Not Bible scholars, not really moral people, not a good paying, not so hardworking job. This is what he does when you come to him. He makes you fishers of men. Whatever your agenda was, it ain't that agenda anymore. Because that's the heart of God. He just, here's more clarity for those who need it. Luke, Luke 19. For the Son of Man came. Let me tell you why I came, just in case it's confusing to you. I came to do this. I came to seek and save the lost. When you think about your mission statement of your life, when, so when you think about your job, when you think about your finances, when you think about your calendar, when you think about where you live, when you think about everything, what is the mission statement over those things? And why in the world would it not be this? Roughly 40 times in the gospel, Jesus would utter the phrase something like this. As the Father, the Father has sent me. The Father, I, I've been sent by the Father. About 40 times. And then toward the end of his life, it's recorded in John. He says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. I have been sent to seek and save the loss. Translation, you have been sent to seek and save the loss. Send me whenever, whatever, wherever. You see, when we approach God's presence, we want God to be available to us, which is a normal good thing. God, help me, heal me, bless me. I'm feeling some guilt. I'd like not to feel guilty. I need some friends. I'd like to have some friends. I need some purpose. I'd like to have some purpose. I need some encouragement. I'd like to have some encouragement. You know what? God will bless your socks off. He'll answer that prayer. When you approach God's presence, you want God to be available to you. 
But when you're in God's presence, you want to be available to him. Something changes. Something changes in your heart. And to drive this home, again, just, he, he's saying this all the time. He says, you know what, guys? Okay, I'll tell you a few stories. Let me tell you a story. In fact, I'm going to tell you three consecutive stories that all have the same point. They're all about lost things that get found. So let me tell you guys. So, so, so you, there are a lot of shepherds in the room here. He says in his day. Which one of you, you have 100 sheep, you lose one. Which one of you shepherds would not leave the 99 to go find the one lost sheep? You all would go find that sheep. Even if 1% of your sheep was missing, you would go find it. Okay, I'll take it up a notch. You only have 10 coins, you lose a coin. How much, how many of you would not turn your house upside down and yell at your kids while you search for this coin? Maybe it was a little too honest. Okay, so um, of course you would. And when you find that coin, would you not throw a party? Yes, you would. Okay, let me take it up a notch. You have two kids. You lose one. How do you feel about that? And just about every parent has had that experience where they've gone to the store, let's say. They got their three kids with them. They're going there to get their list. Their focus is on the list. And then they, and then they look up and they realize that one of their kids is missing. So they, you yell out their name. You yell out their name, you don't hear anything. So you go aisle by aisle by aisle, and you see nothing. So you just leave your cart of stuff, and you run outside, and you look, and you yell out nothing. You see nothing. And then you see like a security guard standing outside. You come up to him, and he's just standing there. You're like, sir, have you seen my son? I can't find my son. And he just says, no. And then your child yanks on your pants and says, can we still get chocolate? <laughs> and you're like, that is a really great question if your brother wasn't lost. I have to think that's how God feels when we ask questions like, hey, What's the, what's the worship style like? Hey, hey, tell, tell me more about the curriculum and J-Kids. You know, that's a really great question, son. If there weren't like billions of people on the face of the earth that are lost right now. And you see like the security guard who seems unmoved, and you're almost indignant that they, they won't help you. In fact, it's probably their job to help you, and they won't help you. They don't share your heart. This little child has no clue. Thought experiment, parents. How would you feel about the man or woman who would judge your son? Serves him right for running off. He gets what he deserves. Can't help you. How would you feel about the, parent, the, the man or the woman who would avoid your son? I've got my own problems to deal with. I can't help your son. How would you feel about the man or the woman who wants to be like your son? Whose job is it really to say who's lost and who's found? I don't think there's anything wrong here. I can't help you. People who want to judge your son, avoid your son, be like your son, do not have your heart when you have a son that's lost. People who have your heart are doing everything they are doing whatever, whenever, wherever. 
I mean, you've, your, your grocery list is gone. But I, I spent two hours putting this. You don't say stupid stuff like that. I put together this list for two hours. I planned my whole week. Yeah, but your son is lost. I've worked my whole life. I've got a degree in this. Yeah, but his kids are lost. Whenever we as a church stop praying this prayer to do whatever, whenever, to reach God's lost kids, we may have people showing up, but we stopped being a church a long time ago. We may be a club, a good one, a fun one, a happy one, encouraging one. It's not a church. And we won't have to close the doors because God will probably close the doors for us. There are a lot of reasons. I think people leave churches way too easily. Um, but if there's ever a good reason to leave a church, it's if they, if they don't pray this prayer. And I get it. You know, it's just like, you learn this. You just, we just kind of learn. You know, I know it, I, I'm the same way. Like, we just kind of learn how to navigate through church life. And we learn, we learn things the wrong way. And then what, what our song is, the way we, we express ourselves and how we engage it, just, it's, it just goes backwards. I mean, so I don't know if like, I, 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 am, I go through my house and I, I sing the lyrics of songs wrong all the time. I get corrected all the time for singing. But sometimes I do it on purpose just because it's kind of fun. But I, now I don't know what the words are though because I don't, because I've changed it. It's just like it's so long ago that I forgot what it was. And so I just keep singing them wrong. And so, but I Googled what is the most uh, misquoted song. And one of them at the very top was a song, uh, Africa by Toto, Okay. And the way, it's, it's, the way it goes is like, you know, I bless the rains down in Africa, but what, what, it, what often gets misquoted is I left my brains down in Africa. Now, the funny thing is, is like how people sing it. I mean, they're just so confident. I left my brains down in Africa. Like, they're confident. It's like, yeah, maybe you did lose your brains down in Africa. It's like, that's not the lyrics of the song, but you know what? If you learn it wrong, you'll sing it wrong. Guess what? You'll live it wrong. We can't, we can't live church wrong. So we're, this church is built around helping you take that next step into saying this prayer. So what does it look like? Well, here I am, send me. Well, it for sure means being responsible, taking responsibility for the lost people in your eyesight, in your sphere of influence, and in the people that you live with, work with, play with. Being responsible for that. The Bible has some real clear language about that. Because this is God's heart. I mean, he wants to capture it into his heart. So we, 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 if you go through growth track, by the way, all these things I'm getting ready to say, we, they're all orientation to how to do this. So one of them is, is we do something called bless. Begin with prayer, listen, have meals with people, eat, serve them, share your story. Just go and engage people. Go and bless them. Go and do this over and over and over. And I know people will get all freaked out because like, Man, what if they object to something that I can't answer? Well, hey, this will help you. God has never asked you to be his defense attorney. He's asked you to be his witness. So a defense attorney job is to present an airtight case. A witness just tells her side of the story. I was, I don't know about, I don't know who this man is. I just know that I was blind and now I see. 
I, I don't know, maybe nothing good can come out of Nazareth, but here's what I know. I was lame, now I can walk. I was lost, now I'm found. I was alone, and now I'm in his family. You just tell your side of the story. And then, you, and then, you, and then, you, then, you're, then you're sent and you're serving. So the, the life of the Christian is it walks, if you're following Jesus, you're gonna walk further and further and further down that Calvary road until there's nothing left. And here's what we want to orientate you on. It was said already that you have a gift. You are a gift and you have a gift. God wants to use you. God wants to use you in a community who's going out to seek and save a lost world. Because here's the thing. You know, oftentimes when we think fishers of men, we think like a singular rod and reel. And the, and the, and the, and the key to that kind of fishing is, is technique you know, like, how good are you at sharing? How good are you? You know, that's why we get all freaked out about evangelism. But in ancient times, and in, in that time, fishing was not an individual. It was a team sport. It wasn't in your technique. It was in the strength of the net. And what God wants you to do is he wants to weave you in with a group of people, make you a really strong net to throw you out into all the different subcultures to catch a fish. So you need brothers and sisters. You need to be sent in your community. If you're just living for your life, then I can get why being a part of a community group is, feels like, a, you know, maybe it's a good, you know, if I, got, if I can meet some people there I connect with. No, you're, you are on a, you're, you're praying this prayer, God, send me. And you're going to need brothers and sisters to encourage you in that. We're sent in all of our life. But, and, and, and I know what you're thinking, because it's what I'm thinking when I was started thinking this, message through, and I'm even thinking right now, it's like, oh my gosh, I came here to get encouraged, and that didn't happen. Like, I'm just like, I feel worse. I feel like I got to get busy. Um, no, what you need is you need to encounter God, and maybe you need to encounter him for the first time, or maybe you need to encounter him for the first time in a long time. Not the God that you've brought alongside of you that you stick in your pocket every once in a while. But the God who has a train on his robe that fills the temple where there's no room for your authority. Because look here, let's go, I told you to underline this. It says, there's this phrase here, holy, holy, holy right? That's really important. It's really important because there's a lot of repetition in the Bible. You may have noticed that. And the reason why there's repetition, well, there's a reason why there's not repetition in our language. There's like a million words in the English language. So if you want to say something is really big, you could say it's, you know, gigantic or enormous, or you can say ginormous. I mean, you can, you can mix words together. Like there's all kinds of ways to express how something is big. But in the Hebrew language, it was like six or 8,000 words. So in order to, to add emphasis, you repeated the word. A famous one is in Genesis 14.10, where it, 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 if you read different translations, it says it in, five, I think, five different ways. It says slimy pits or this kind of pit or that kind of pit. But the real translation is pit pit. And what the Bible's saying is that there are pits and there are pits. There are some pits that are pittier than other pits. But these pits, the pit pits, are the pittiest of them all. <laughs> and so all throughout the Bible, I spend my time very wisely. And all throughout the Bible... All throughout the Bible, it's repeating. It's, it'll have repetition. Like, so Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you. 
you know, if you read the King James, very rarely I say to you. It's, it's repeating, but there's only one time. So this happens a lot in the Bible. There's only one time, though, where it says it three times. And you're looking at it right now. And the reason why it's saying it three times, see, it's, it's describing who God is. See, see it doesn't say that, that God is power, power, power. It doesn't even say God is love, love, love. This is what's true of God. So it sets God apart. He's holy, he's holy, he's holy. In other words, he's not like me. He's really not like me. He's really, really not like me. He's holy, he's holy, he's holy. He's set apart, he's different. And Isaiah's feeling this. He is big and I am small. He is high and I am low. He, he, he feels this gap between God and himself. And anyone, anyone who would experience God, who would have an encounter with God, is going to feel this gap. Isaiah is aware of this gap, and that's why he prays, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. Isaiah recognizes this gap, but now watch this, though, because this burning coal um, was directed by God, but an angel comes and takes this burning coal and touches that part of Isaiah of expressed sinfulness, his lips. It says your sin has been atoned for, but this wasn't the only scene like this. There was another altar that wasn't a pile of rocks, but it was in the shape of a cross. And Jesus on this altar shed his blood, and his body was broken, and he atoned for the guilt of anyone who would express their sinfulness, who would recognize the gap between him and you, and cry out, woe is me, I'm a sinful man. And and in that context, in that context, Isaiah was feeling like judgment's coming down on me. Judgment is coming down on me. But because of what Jesus did on the cross, judgment came down on him. And his sin was atoned for. So he was like, here I am. Send me. I've got your, I've got you. You've got my heart. Send me. Send me whenever. Send me wherever. Send me whatever. Here I am. Send me. That's how you sing that prayer. 